The story so far. Jesus has been walking through the region of Galilee doing all sorts of miracles. People are becoming attracted to him. So far he has seen Now, so far, I'm sorry, so far the people have seen him attested to by John as the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The people have seen him turn water into wine at Cana in Galilee. They've either seen it or heard of it. The people have seen or heard of what he did with the Samaritan woman at the well. The people have seen or heard of what he did with the man paralysed by the pool of Bethsaida. And so we come to today's word. John chapter 6, 25 to 26. And this begins just after Jesus had done the miracle of feeding the 5,000 on the mountain. The 5,000 on the mountain fed with just a few loaves and fishes. The 5,000 on the mountain experiencing an incredibly spectacular miracle. 5,000 people who by this stage had become so impressed with this person who was walking around the area of Galilee that they were saying, who is this person? What is this person? He's going to do something wonderful for us. Perhaps he's the Messiah. Perhaps he's the one promised by by Moses to the point that they would be prepared to walk out into a wilderness onto a mountain where there was no food, no water and yet still have trust that this person would do something for them and he did the miracle. Immediately following that he disappeared. His disciples got into a boat, they rowed across the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum and they knew that Jesus hadn't gone with them. But then they found he was not there. And then they found that he'd walked on the water across the, the, the sea that night. He'd walked on the water. Here's a group of people, a, mass, a huge number of people, who have become incredibly impressed with this miracle worker, this person who's doing unheard of and un, unbelievable things. And they're, they're witnesses to it. And so let's now start to read John chapter 6, 25 to 26, to, to 51. But let's just start to read the story now. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them saying, Truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. These people had been exposed to the most incredible miracles. They were awestruck. They were stunned. And Jesus starts to rebuke them, though. He says, look, you're following me because you've seen a whole lot of spectacular things that I've done, and you think maybe you're going to benefit from all the spectacular things I can do, that I'm going to somehow or other be uh, just your provider of whatever you think you need. He said, but you're not, you don't get it. You're only following me for what this is going to do for you. You're only following me because you've seen signs, but you don't know what those signs signify. You're following me because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Now, I want you to take my advice, looking at verse 27 now. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And look at the pictures there. What the people wanted was what was on the left. For the food, for the prosperity, for the good life. For the here and the now, for the immediate. We just want you to gratify our desires and our appetites. And Jesus said, no, I want you to, endure, to, to labor for the food that endures to eternal life. Notice Jesus said, I want you to labor. I want you to work. I want you to be intentional. I want you to be focused on the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And you see there on the right a, a, a painting of the baptism of Jesus. Now, whilst this is not dealt with in any detail in the Gospel of John, in the other Gospels, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus because Jesus says it's fitting and that this is what should be done. John said, no, look, you should, I should, be, you should be baptizing me, not I you. And Jesus said, no, it's, I want this to be done to fulfill all righteousness. But at that time, they saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove and they heard a voice from heaven. And Jesus said, I want you to... In to, to labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And so there'd been these signs, there'd been these things that have indicated who Jesus was. And the people then said to him, what must, must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. You believe on. You believe in. And now that word believe, we're going to pick that up a little bit later in this sermon, but that word believe does not just mean to give mental agreement to something. It means to align your whole life to this one. And that's why it's called a work. Now we're looking at verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Uh, this is almost unbelievable. I've just recounted the story so far, how many signs and miracles there had already been and how spectacular it was. This is the group of people who had seen him or, or were aware of him having walked across the water, who had been uh, or had heard of the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, and they're saying, what work are you going to do? You know, it's a funny thing. These people were hungry for signs and wonders. But they weren't wondering about what the signs signified. They weren't wondering about what they pointed to. But let's continue. What work do you perform? It's just un unbelievable that people should say that when they've been confronted with what this story had already said so far. And they looked at him and they said, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. 
Just come back to that verse about the bread from heaven. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But look at the next phrase. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's not saying it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Uh, it was my father who gave you the bread back in those days. He's saying, no, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven back in the days of the Exodus. But right now, my father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down and gives life to the world. Jesus was actually speaking of himself as the bread. Now, there's no time here to unpack that symbolism of the bread and how that theme of the bread goes all the way through the Old Testament and, then, and, and points to the fact that the bread, the nourishment that comes from God is the word of life, is Jesus himself. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. Looking at verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, this is very important that you focus on those last few verses, that, that, that last verse there. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But if I've seen something and I acknowledge I've seen it, for, for modern people we'd say that's that. Of course I saw it. You know, I saw it. I believe it. But that's not meeting what believe means here. Jesus is actually saying, you've seen it. You've got enough information to know that it's true. But you are not aligning yourself to it. You are not lining up your life to this truth. You are not connecting to it. You're not being steadfast and faithful to it. Now we go to verse 37. Jesus continues the conversation. He says, now, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing <coughs> excuse me, of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, it's as if the crowds didn't even hear what Jesus had just said. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. You don't realize the commitment I've got to you. And you come to me, I'm not going to lose you and I'm going to raise you up on the last day. What an incredible thing to have said. And again, we see them get right to the surface of the matter. They completely missed it. They didn't hear what he said. So the Jews grumbled about him, verse 40. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It's like they didn't even connect with what Jesus had just said. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus answered them. 
Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is not responding to their grumbling, but continuing the message he came to bring. As it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. That, interestingly enough, is an allusion to the promise of the new covenant, which occurs in Jeremiah and Hebrews. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, referring to himself. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes, whoever aligns his life, whoever connects himself to what I'm saying, whoever gets it, whoever wants this, has eternal life. And I love that picture that I found there on the right-hand side of the screen. If you look carefully at the hand, you'll see something in the centre of it. And it took me a while to figure out. I thought at first it was the wound from the nail being depicted, but it's actually a wedding ring. And Christ is our bridegroom. Christ is the lover of our souls. Christ is the one who wants to enter into us and to, in, to encompass us and to show us what true love actually means and what the very meaning of our existence is. John verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Okay, let's turn over and we'll just do a few life lessons based on this and think it through. First of all, there was a big controversy, conversation built into that, a big theme about signs. The people were then hungry for signs and wonders. We see this in the modern church today. We see it in the world. People are always looking for the spectacular, for the sign, for the wonder. But the, often what we're looking for more is the sensation or something that distracts us from the, what we're actually encountering in our lives. Uh, again, to use a phrase I used uh, a few moments ago, we seem to be determined sometimes to get right to the surface of the matter. We're more interested in the sign than the thing it's pointing to. And I like that picture I have on the right there. There's a whole lot of signs on that wall, but they've been rendered meaningless by being taken out of their context. And I think often, sometimes, if we're not careful, our hunger for spiritual signs and wonders is like adorning our adolescent hearts, our adolescent uh, rooms in our hearts with, with meaningless signs and really excited about all of these wonderful signs pulling out of context instead of realising that what matters is not the sign, but what the sign is telling us and where we, where we should be going to. Signs must not be ignored. They're important. Jesus gave us the signs so we'd know where to look. But neither must the signs be adored for their own sake. And that's the problem I think a lot of these people had at the beginning of this story. What matters is what the sign points to. 
There are seven signs in the Gospel of John, and they're on the next screen. And we need to understand what these signs are. I'm not going to unpack these today. There wouldn't be time. But there are seven signs in the Gospel of John that all point to the reality of who Jesus is. The first sign, Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding at Galilee. He healed the royal official son. That's in John chapter 4. He healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. He walked on water. And that's where we're up to at this point. And following this, there are two other signs. The healing of the man born blind and the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this, this is where the glory of Christ is truly shown in the Gospel of John. So we've got to be a people who value the signs, who don't ignore the signs, who, who, who understand that God can move miraculously and powerfully in these days as he has done in the past, but not become so obsessed with the signs. We follow the signs rather than miss the reality they point to. The second lesson today is about believing. Jesus said our work was to believe. The word translated believe and faith in the Bible is pistis in the noun and pistevo in the, in, the, in the verb. And the interesting thing is those words are most commonly associated with steadfastness and loyalty in the ancient scriptures. So we have to take, if the scriptures use this word, we have to read this word in the way that it was written in the context of its own times. Now in recent years, we have reduced the idea of believing to acknowledging something we've seen. Uh, in technical terms, to cognitive assent. In other words, I, yes, I did see it. Yes, it was there. But what it means has somehow other shifted. In the context of the scriptures, you're not a believer unless you say, hey, listen, that's true. I'm connecting myself to it. I'm aligning my life to it. Interestingly enough, I think that in the English language, there's an idiom that Australians have that Almost no other English-speaking people have, and even other English-speaking people have trouble understanding with the word, and it's the word fair dinkum. Jesus basically said, this is the work I want you to do. I want you to be a fair dinkum follower of me. I want you to be fair dinkum in the way you approach me. Now, that doesn't exhaust all the meaning of it, but somehow or other it picks up a very important aspect of it. I don't want to be a person who just looks at the surface. I want to be a person who true blue, fair dinkum, gets to the heart of the thing and lives a fair dinkum life and response to it. Belief is not just cognitive assent. Interestingly enough, the word leave at the end of believe actually comes from an ancient root word that means to care, desire and love. So basically, when I say I'm going to believe something, it means I'm going to care, desire and love this thing. And to actually acknowledge that it's there is just the very beginning. That's just the surface of belief. The sad thing is we've reduced our use of the word belief and often the word faith to the very surface meanings. It's not that those meanings are wrong. It's that somehow or other we've shaved them from the top of something much larger, more glorious, sweeter and more life-fulfilling. We are here to align our lives consistently in accord with Christ and to unite or be as one with him. The next lesson is the sign of the manna. The manna showed, the, the whole conversation of the manna dealt with the ancient story of the Passover. And you see there on the, uh, the left a picture of people uh, uh, 
dressed and ready to do the first pose. So this is a, an artwork based on the Bible and you can see they've got staffs. They're dressed as if they're going for a journey. It's an interesting thing that even in the Last Supper, Jesus did not, the Last Supper, uh, sorry, the communion at the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper part of the Last Supper was not part of the fellowship meal. I believe it's good for us to have fellowship meals, but don't confuse them with communion. We can, I believe, have communion together. But communion and a fellowship meal are not the same thing. Communion was when we actually connected ourselves to the purpose of God and to the covenant. Because at that, that, that fellowship meal, at, or at that first communion, Jesus picked up the cup. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. And it's basically a connection to the covenant, the purposes of God. And we're saying, okay, we've had wonderful fellowship together. We've had this beautiful meal together like they did at the, at the, at the, uh, at the Last Supper. But what we what, what, what then do say, okay, with this fellowship, with this love we've now got for each other, let's now be a purple who, people who purposefully live for the purposes of God. Let's become people who are true believers, who are doing the work of faith, who are doing the work of seeing our lives aligned to God and knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work producing that in us. Let me read through the context here of the sign of the manna. There were 10 trials. 10 trials. Now, I'm going to go to the next screen, then I'm going to come back to this one. This actually refers to a passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. And it's Moses addressing the children of Israel. He said, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, <clears throat> that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And that speaks of our eternal hope. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And the years in the wilderness can speak often of the struggles and the temptations that we experience in this life. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The bread was associated with the word. Jesus is the word. And look at the ten trials. Let's go back to the previous slide. In their journey to the promised land, in their exodus, they went through 10 trials. We're on a new exodus. We're on our own journey to the promised land, to the fulfillment of God's promises. And it's a process of transformation and testing. And the 10 trials that they had on their journey were facing the Red Sea, the bitter water at Marah, hunger, gluttony, the idolatry of the golden calf, complaining, at Tabera, unthankfulness, dissension against Moses, and then finally the unbelief at Kadesh Barnea when they were invited to enter the promised land but believed the evil report instead of the positive report. So there are trials and testings that come into our lives, but we're called to believe and to understand the Word of God and His purposes in us. Next lesson, the drawing of the Father. John 6.44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sees me draws him. 
and I'll raise him up at the last day. Now, some people say, well, this actually means that, that God only has certain people that he's calling and he doesn't call all of humanity. And there are some very sincere Christians, some who are very good friends of mine, who sincerely believe that God only created some people to go to heaven and therefore he created some people for the purpose of going to hell and being punished just to show God's righteousness. Now, I love those people. I disagree profoundly with them. Uh, but they often take this verse out of context to say, well, that proves that point. The problem is that the same word for drawing turns up in John chapter 12, verse 32. And Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth and draw all people to myself. So we end up with two possible extremes. Some people say all are saved regardless and others say only those predestined can be saved. I like, to, I like the resolution that we see in the Song of Solomon, verses 1-4, where the same word elko is used in the um, Greek translation of the Song of Solomon, which was the one that was very predominant uh, at the time of Jesus. And it says here, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his changes. And that, that drawing actually is more to do with the way a bridegroom would woo his bride. It says, listen, come to me. I love you. I want to live my life for you. And if I'm going to hold on to you, I will never let you go. And that's the context with which we must read those words that we just read in the Gospel of John. The answer, Jesus will hold fast to all who respond to the drawing of the Father and the Son. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, where am I with Jesus? What should I do? Just think you have somebody who is a heavenly bridegroom. I love that picture you saw a moment ago with a hand extended with a ring. And was it the wound from the nail or was it the ring to put on your finger as his bride? The sacrifice, the commitment, the degree to which Jesus is committed to you and that he will walk with you through the trials and the temptation, the tribulations of this life. It doesn't mean he'll make life necessarily easier or harder for you, but it does mean he'll be with you and he will cause you to benefit from every trial, every tribulation, every testing. That is so much the message that we're having here. The one who has the power to walk on the water, the one who has the power to feed the 5,000 will never leave you nor forsake you. He is your heavenly bridegroom and all of us, male or female, are called to become part of his church. That picture you see on the right there, by the way, is a fresco in an Italian church, I believe, painted centuries ago. And the picture there is not actually Mary. That's actually the bride of Christ. That symbolizes the church. And all of us, male and female, are called ultimately to be part of the bride of Christ, which is his church. Who then? is Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the one sent from heaven. Jesus is the eternal God the Son. Fully man, fully God. He is the true manner, the Word of God. The Word of God. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, in the Greek translation called the Septuagint, when Moses asked Jesus uh, asked God um, what his name was. God said, Ego Ami Ho On. It means I am who am. In John chapter 8, verses 24, Jesus said, 
if you do not believe that I am, and there he said, ego a me, exactly the same words, you will die. And John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. And in the passage we were looking at today, John chapter 6, 35 to 51, Jesus said, I am, ego a me, the bread of life. And then in the later verses, he says, I am the light of the world. Ego a me, the door of the sheep. I am, ego a me, the good shepherd. I am, ego a me, the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. Who is Jesus in John? And here are the first four verses of the Gospel of John. I saw somebody write once, and I think it's a beautiful thing, that all theology is contained in the first four verses of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in many ways is just unpacking the meaning of these incredibly powerful four verses. In the beginning, in that which is the source and the root of all things was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. If you look at that picture there, it's a very famous ancient icon of Christ held in a monastery in Sinai. And the person who painted this wanting to express the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that is, two natures, painted the two sides of the face slightly differently and then shows his hand wrapped around the book because in the volume of the book it was written of me. And here is an attempt to say in picture language we must understand Christ as fully God and fully man as revealed in the Word of God. And it's wonderful to be able to be part of a church, a community of people who continue that understanding. What's our take-home summary? We've got to embrace the new Passover. Jesus is taking us on a new journey. We've got to join the new Exodus. We've got to recognise Jesus as the true bread from heaven. We've got to understand who Jesus is. And who he is is more important than what he can do. We've got to stop getting to the surface of the matter and just chasing signs and wonders or what's relevant to us for the moment, but to connect with what's eternally true. We've got to believe in him, align to him, unite with him, be drawn by him. Our lives are designed, our created purpose, our nature, the God who created us, created us for a purpose, and our lives are designed to conform to his image. He's not trying to force something foreign upon us. He's trying to remove the foreign things from us so we can be truly who we are in his image and likeness. Our hunger for our true selves can only be satisfied by assimilating his life. Now let me pray. And I want to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray as we respond now or as we now bring this word to an end. And that is, our Father, the one who is in the heavens, the one who is in the heavens who sent Jesus to us, 
Lord, let your name be held holy and respected in the same way. Let your name be held holy and respected in the same way that Jesus held it and wanted to bring us to. Let your kingdom come so that we have heaven upon earth. Let your will be done here. Your ways, your grace, your love be the way that things work here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And the interesting thing is in the Greek of the Lord's Prayer there, that word is epiousion, which means the special substance. And I believe it refers to even what Jesus was referring to when he said that he was the bread from heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily Jesus. Give us this day our daily practical needs at the same time. And Lord, show us how to release our sense of obligation and control over others the same way, Lord, please. I don't know how to meet the fulfillment of who you are. And so, Lord, forgive me, release me from the things that I should be obliged to but want to be able to do. Lord, spare me in my life the trials and the temptations. Help me, Lord, to work my way through them. And Lord, in doing so, deliver me from the evil that is in this world, from the evil one, and Lord, even from the things that are in my heart that are not right. Lord, I thank you for the wonder of your word. I thank you for the reality of your prayer, Lord. Just help me to be attentive to praying how you've taught me to pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your life. Thank you for, for your grace. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.